Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be with you tonight in our satsang. We are continuing the last chapters of the Gospel of Luke, uh, going to the grand finale of the teachings of Jesus. We were at the time when Jesus came close to the city of Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem. He was on the Mount of Olives, which on those days was a little bit outside of the old city, <coughs> but above on a height. And as he was there, he saw the city of Jerusalem right down in front of his eyes. And um, he wept over it by predicting a very bitter future to this city of Jerusalem its destruction, which happened about 40 years later, and he predicted by saying they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. According to Jesus, God, who is just in the time of the Jewish religion, they considered God mostly on Manipura, and that's why they considered that maybe God is angry, vengeful. Um, I think from the standpoint of yoga, we can say that divine consciousness is way, way above Manipura chakra, and it is way, way above consideration, like to say that God is angry or God is vengeful, but is God not also loving? Is God also not forgiving? Is God also not creative? Is God also not intuitive? Is God also not pure? Is God also not pure intelligence and cosmic mind? Is God also not compassionate? Is God also not... God is all these and much more than the human language can describe. And that's why these are very partial views and a very clumsy attempt to explain the consciousness of God by comparing it to human feelings and comparing it to human emotions. So there is much more. You cannot only say that, okay, God sent Jesus. Jesus did everything he could to advertise, look, I have come here. He had been around for three years. And after three years of going around in Israel, when his reputation should have been well known already, he's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there is a part of the population which recognizes him, and there is another part of the population which is influenced by the scribes, Phariseans, teachers of the laws, teachers of the Jewish law, and others, and who would rather say that he is crazy, that he is demonized, that he is too much, and eventually, when they have to choose between him and a common murderer to be released on the Passover day, they choose the murderer, they choose the terrorist they choose the so-called patriot called Barabbas. And in this way, Jesus says clearly, he knows in advance, he says there will be this and this, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. But there was a time when God fulfilled his promise. And because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. But there was a time when God fulfilled the Messiah. 
Jesus because the Jews were supposed not to recognize the Jesus is coming, coming to you. They were supposed to recognize of God fulfilled it was their own religion, religion. because the Jews was there not to recognize or they were waiting for the Messiah was supposed to recognize the Lord it was their own religion because the Jews was there not to recognize they were waiting for the Messiah was supposed to people out of their grave which nobody had seen before. The Messiah had been healing the blind and the lepers. The Messiah walked on water and arrested storms. He did pretty much anything that simple minds can imagine, like, wow! No? And then, he comes to Jerusalem and they, did not rec- they do not recognize him. So in this way, there appears this fear that God is too angry and then people don't accept it. They say it can't be true. God, The God which I imagine would not be like this. You can't imagine God. God is much, much, much more than what you can imagine. As a mystic once said, the God is everything that has been, is and will ever be plus something more. Therefore, our, the human mind cannot even embrace the idea of what God is, and then people have expectations of God. They think that they know how God should react, and if you pray that your father should not die, and God still allows your father to die, then you are angry at God, because God was supposed to listen to you. God was supposed to act the way you predicted that God will act, while it's obvious that it is you who don't understand much out of the consciousness of God and out of the metaphysical truths of existence. So here, Jesus simply says, somehow it is, or it would have been, the duty of people to be more vigilant, more aware, to seize the opportunity to realize now it's not a joke. Now it's not a prophecy. Now it's happening. Jesus simply tells that God, because otherwise you say, how should we know? We are subjected to Maya. We are blind. We are caught in our own soap opera. And then Jesus came. And we miserable snails or whatever, worms, whatever we are, baboons, we didn't notice. Sorry, sorry, oh God, we didn't notice. Jesus says, sorry is not enough. Even even if God is so forgiving, and Jesus is bringing the message of love and forgiveness, here, suddenly he goes into the Jewish Manipura thing, you know? It's like there will be no stone turned upon a stone. He says, they will, uh, and they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls, like squash you, beat you, crush you, you know, like atrocious things. Not to mention, which is less important, but still, where it says they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's pretty nasty. Like you did not recognize that Jesus was Jesus, and then you are going to be go you are going to the meat grinder like god is not very tolerant for this failure this failure 
is too much. No? So in this way, we can see that Jesus can be politically incorrect and impolite at times because he raises the stakes very much. No? People say, come on, you know, not everybody is Peter and John and Paul. And even those people, when Jesus was caught, they ran away like scared monkeys, like scared pigs, you know, and like rabbits, you know, if you want to rhyme with scared, you know, because that's an animal which is easily scared. No? But, and, and even those were like not worth it. And there was those people lived with Jesus and they were his disciples. What do you expect from the masses? Then you discover that God has bloody high expectations. Like if you don't fulfill it, there's going to be a punishment. It's like you dumped a test. You failed a major spiritual test. And uh, it's like it's not taken lightly. Which means being average, not multiplying this uh, whatever mina, whatever monos coin was there in the previous session. We're talking about this parable of multiplying the minas, the shekels, the dollars, whatever they were. That God has some expectations and they are pretty steep. And if they are not fulfilled, you and your children will be dashed to the ground like squashed. And there will be no stone left upon the stone. Like God is not very tolerant. Why? We try to explain it in a yogic way to understand, to see that it makes perfect sense. Because the law of existence on this planet and I dare say in this universe is evolution never forget this and if you forgot it or you never realized it then please quickly quickly do the metaphysical workshop of Agama first time when it comes available because there you will learn this fundamental truth you exist only because potentially you can evolve and of course you can evolve a little or you can evolve a lot, but at least you must evolve. And all the rest is accepted on behalf of this process of evolution. And if the process of evolution does not happen, God considers it a waste of resources. God says, I took my immortal spirit I materialized it, which is like a prostitution, which is like putting a hardness on it, because I take the infinite consciousness and subject it to maya. Remember, maya means to measure. It means the measurable. So from something infinite, outside of space and time, I create something measurable, like a crucible, like a pot where I'm boiling my soup. And that's the universe, that's the limited world, where suddenly you have spirit, and this spirit is limited in a body, this spirit is limited in time. So this is like I'm raping my spirit by making it limited in space and time, only so that evolution can happen. And when I do this huge sacrifice, which is like a blood sacrifice, Exactly like Jesus coming to the world, because it's a simile, it's a similar sacrifice, as above, so below. And 
This blood sacrifice is coming without results. I did a bloody sacrifice and nothing is moving down there. There is no evolution. Then the nature of God says, why am I doing it then? I'm doing it for nothing, right? And therefore, please be aware of this. God is utilitarian. That means the universe is created because it serves a purpose. Only that that purpose is not understood by people. And what we can understand from it is grouped under the concept of evolution. The universe is created to create a stage work for souls to evolve. God wants many, many, many souls to evolve like a river, 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 river of souls, which eventually reach to enlightenment and they become Buddhas. And then there is a sort of a confirmation of this divine consciousness. When we search for the motivation of this, it becomes absurd. Like if you remember from Kashmiri Shaivism, those of you who did Kashmiri Shaivism, why does Shiva create the universe? Yeah? And Abhinavagupta answers, because. You know, like that's the answer. You know, like you cannot hope to understand why with a human mind. The human mind is not vast enough to understand the why of the creation of the universe, of the creation of life, and so on. We know that life is sacred, that the creation is sacred, but we don't understand exactly how and why. And therefore, the purpose is evolution. And therefore, the the flower, the salt of the earth, as Jesus himself has called it at some point, are exactly the spiritual people, is the spirituality. All the rest is like a scaffold which sustains the spirituality. And thus, if the spirituality is not satisfied, it means the tree of life, the universe, does not fulfill its goal. If it doesn't bear the fruits, and the fruits are Buddha, the fruits are Shankaracharya, Milarepa, Rumi, Francis of Assisi. These are the fruits. So these have to happen. When the tree produces no more fruits, it is cut and thrown into the fire. Jesus himself gives a similar parable. If a planet cannot serve the purpose of life and evolution, that planet can very well be destroyed because why keep it? Nothing happens for nothing in a universe which is alive and conscious. There is no random, like, okay, there is the planet Earth, but then what's happening on planet Venus? Something must happen on the planet Venus. Either Venus is required because it corresponds to a goddess, and that goddess influences the people living on the planet Earth, and then Venus has to spin and create its phases because it coordinates something on the planet Earth. It's the music of the spheres, which astrologically influence what's happening on the planet Earth. Or if not, there is life on Venus of some sort, and therefore Venus serves a purpose. If Venus does not have an influence on the cycles of life of Earth, or if Venus is not herself a planet where life can happen, that then Venus will be destroyed, like with the Occam's razor. 
It's minimalistic. You don't let a stone, a piece of rock, hurl out in the cosmos just because like God created redundantly, abundantly, superabundantly. And it's like, okay, the earth matters, but Venus, ah. Venus doesn't matter. Nothing is happening there. If nothing is happening there, then Shiva sucks it back into the void. Resorbs it. Why let Venus be up there if it doesn't fulfill a purpose? Like God is utilitarian. There is a cosmic mind, an intelligence which evaluates every bit, every blade of grass, and every planet in every solar system fulfills a function. It's only that the human mind cannot see it except through meditation and clairvoyance. People can understand this music of spheres and the global picture of this universe. And therefore, the same thing is happening with human life. If the human life does not serve the purpose of evolution, it can be terminated. And thus... The purpose of life, if you want to be politically incorrect, black and white, is to create evolution. And all the rest is useless. Tibetan gurus say, one life spent in search of the truth is more valuable than, pay attention, than all the lives which you have lived in a whole cosmic eon. Like eon can mean hundreds of thousands or even hundreds of millions of years. You've lived a thousand lifetimes and in those lifetimes you just plowed the land, fucked and had eight children and whatever. Those lives mean nothing. And they are allowed only because God knows that after a thousand of those, there will come the thousand and first where you will make relevant steps forward. It's exactly like those one thousand are the trunk and the branches of the tree and the thousand and first is the flower. And God is happy for the flower and says it was worth it to keep all this junk piece of wood here Because on this junk piece of wood, finally I got a flower. God is utilitarian. There is a purpose to all the things. And therefore, if you go into the world of of intolerant, of radical spirituality, for those people everything is a waste of time. That you meet with a Christian priest, and that priest is coming and saying, Hi, Walter, how are you? Oh, I heard you got a new baby. Oh, great. How many have you got? Three. Okay, you and your wife are wonderful people and you are working in a car factory. This is for ultra-spirituality. It's a total waste of time. Milarepa is completely not interested in the fact that you have a family and you work in a car factory and you have three children. This bourgeois life, this mediocre life, is a complete waste of time. It can be tolerated because after a thousand such wastes of times, there will come the thousand and first, which will be the real deal. Then one day you'll get a chili up your ass like Milarepa, 
and do something. No? And because those a thousand were preparing that thousand and first, they are tolerable. But by themselves, if the number thousand and one would miss, those one thousand are a total waste of time. If God would know that there is no thousand and one, he will hit you with a lightning by the time you reach to the tenth of them. He will say one, two, three, ten, nothing is happening. Zap! You know, like, take it out of my face. Dematerialize it. Resorb it into the nothingness of the void. I don't want to see that. No, because I cannot have something which does not go somewhere. Something which does not evolve into something. So, the truth is that spirituality is for the Buddhas. And mediocrity, spiritual mediocrity, is only tolerated. That's the scary truth. But spiritual people, you know, you meet with whoever, some great Tibetan Lama, or great, you meet with Swami Shivananda, and they are not going to blow their nose in your soup, you know, splash you uh, badly. You know, they are going to be a bit diplomatic. If you meet with some Tibetan Lama who spent 30 years in a cave, he might blow his nose in your soup because he has forgotten everything about diplomacy and wearing kid gloves and so on. And he's going and saying, what do you do? Uh, I have just three kids and work in a car factory. He will turn the back and go. He doesn't even want to meet with people like you. He lives in a place where nobody can find him or meet him. If you come close to his hermitage, he dematerializes for two weeks and he stays in the limbo until you go away and leave him alone. No? Doesn't even want he does has no interest to talk to you because you are wasting his time. You are breathing his oxygen. He is not interested. But the ones which are more polite, like the gurus who lived in the world, no, they become more polite. They become like politicians. They can tolerate a little bit. They can play the game like you are interesting and you are dear to me. But from the standpoint of the Jewish God, you are not interesting unless you are like Milarepa. If you are like Milarepa, you are interesting. If not, like, okay, another wasted life. And I'm just hoping and hoping that one day you'll sprout. Of course... I'm making it black and white on purpose to make it a little bit more scary, to, to kind of get to you in a scary way. There are many shades of gray. And as you go more and more towards the ultra-white, then it becomes more and more spiritual. Yeah? So there are lives which are very spiritual, there are lives which are spiritual, there are lives which are moderately spiritual, and like this, there are degrees of it. Here, as you can see, Jesus says, for God, it goes so bitterly that people were supposed to recognize his coming. And he says, because you don't recognize, you didn't recognize, no stone will be left upon the stone. And you and your children will be dashed against the walls and against the floor. Like, it's not going to be light. It's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, it's going to be like really nasty. Because God does not tolerate this lack of spiritual presence. This is the most offensive thing. 
And again, there is a sense of compassion, which says a certain amount of waiting is okay. But then, the fruit must give fruits. If I have a tree, and it's been there for 30 years, and it still doesn't give fruits, then my thought is I should have cut it 15 years ago, and planted something else, which in 3-4 years, already would have started giving fruits. Like, why am I sitting here like an imbecile and wait for this fruitless tree to give fruits when it seems it won't? No. Then it's much more simple to start all over because God is not attached. If God created you and discovers that you are a fruit that gives no fruits, God has no problem to throw you into the fire and to create another tree, to create another seed, to start all over. Because as we know, God is notoriously unattached. There is no pain or, uh, oh, Walter, yeah, he was a jerk and gave no fruits, but, uh, you know, I was, he was so dear to me. There isn't. The objective love is completely unattached in this way. And thus, our relationship with God, the relationship of mankind with God is scary. The Jews were already scared by Jehovah because Jehovah was terrible. Don't forget that God is called in India, in some parts of India, Bhairava, frightful, terrible. You find yourself in front of God, the first thing which you do is you shit your pants. Because God is terrible. No, it's like you, you, you cannot almost live that the only luck is that we have the consciousness of God and we love God and we long for God and we have our aspiration and other things and that's what gives us the nerve to stand in front of God to talk to God to say our Father who are in heaven and all that no? because we have a part of that spirit and therefore Jesus <coughs> is very clear upon this thing, that the meaning of life is evolution to the best extent. And if that ideal is not fulfilled, then things are not good at all. And again, God can be patient. And secondly, the representatives of God they can be diplomatic and good politicians. And then Swami Shivananda speaks with people and he says, and how have been the crops this year? Do you really think that Swami Shivananda, if he is a fully enlightened being, he gives a damn about how the crops were? No, he doesn't. No, because if somebody would give a damn, that would be God. And if God would give a damn, then there will never be tsunamis, there would never be earthquakes, there would never be failure of the crops, there will never be forest fires, there will never, because God would say, oh, oh, these people are about to lose their corn, and their corn is very important. Fuck, the corn gets lost by the laws of nature. It's karma, it's resonance, it's this, in that, and God does something about the corn? No. No, because the purpose of the life on this planet is not that you grow a corn crop and then like they did in 1930 at the big economical crisis, they threw it in the water. They threw millions of tons of wheat 
in the water because the price was too low and the bastards were not wanting to sell it cheap or at least to give it away. 30,000 people die of hunger nowadays in Africa and places of Asia every day, you know? And these people couldn't give a million tons of wheat and say, those of you who die of hunger, in now in 1930, you will not die of hunger because we've got a lot of free wheat and we're just shipping it to you and take it and eat it raw. Soak it in water. You, whatever you do, it's your problem. But here is a million tons of wheat. They threw it into the water in the harbor of New York and places like this. Insane. The Russians did the same in the same year. They dumped the markets and whatever they couldn't sell, they just dropped into the water. And meanwhile, millions of people were dying of hunger in Russia under Stalin. Stalin preferred his own people to die of hunger. They were eating children. They were eating their own children in the Russian countryside. You know? And that because Stalin wanted to hit the New York Stock Exchange to get them to crash them. And he crashed them. They crashed. No? But like... What kind of planet is this one? What kind of world do we live into? So, uh, the human beings are supposed to do spirituality. That's the only thing which matters. You say, yeah, but uh, I'm painting oil on canvas. You know, do you think God gives a shit on Mona Lisa? That people say Mona Lisa is probably the most expensive painting. God can burn it in a second, can dematerialize it in a fraction of a second. God doesn't give a shit about the painting called Mona Lisa. It's only people, or the Eiffel Tower, or other. These are just people's illusions. This is people's Maya. That something is him. Must be God must be proud of us that we build the pyramids. God doesn't even use the pyramids, are not even worthy for God to make a caca on top of those pyramids. They are worth nothing from the standpoint of the divine consciousness. Because the purpose of life on earth is not to build pyramids. Purpose of life on earth is completely different. And because that purpose of life is fulfilled together with 99% of other collateral things. But God, we build a 5G network of telephone, mobile telephones. And God, or some representative of God, says, nice, nice. It's impressive how technology has evolved. And in their mind, they say, when I get out of here to stop playing this stupid game of hypocrisy and political correctness, you know? Like, I don't give a shit about your 5G antennas. And I'm just pretending that I give a shit so that you think I'm a nice person. So that you don't get scared or turned off by me. It's elementary diplomacy. I'm practicing politics. But black and white? It's not important. It has no importance. Because most of these things come and go. But Lao Tzu and Rumi, they stay. That's what stays. Buddha Gautama stays. Pyramids come and go. Eiffel Towers Come and go. They are not of great relevance. Only people imagine that, look, we achieved something. You just wasted time. Instead of spending all the energy to build the Eiffel Tower, you could have done Shirshasana. And that would have had much better effects on humanity if all the people who worked on the Eiffel Tower, they did spiritual practice for those hours every day. 
No? This is and got paid by the whoever paid. I don't remember who paid for the Eiffel Tower. But thousands of workers must have worked there for many millions of hours to what if they would have been paid to just do meditation and pranayama and headstands? You know? That for the history of mankind we wouldn't have the Eiffel Tower in Paris, but we would have many more more evolved baboons on the face of this earth. And that's why you people don't see it. People always try to find tolerance for their little projects to make them excusable. And like, aren't you interested that we... Look, this is Minoan ceramics. Like from Minos, from the island of Minos. Do you think God gives a shit about Minoan ceramics? No. Like, who the heck cares? Or uh, somebody carved Venus of Milo. And what if God takes it and crushes it into dust like this, and then there is no Venus of Milo. Where's the problem? What did God lose? What did humanity lose in the big picture? Nothing. Nothing. People refuse to see things through the eyes of God and through the eyes of one like Jesus because it's scary. Because it shows you that you spin in circles and you do things which are unnecessary and waste time and waste energy. And people say, but come on, Swamiji, you know, nobody can live like... Not nobody. Just a very small percentage of the population of the earth can live like that. When they asked Francis of Assisi, you know, the Pope told him, Francesco, you are a spiritual man, but the people who are come after you, they will not be as gifted as you are. So they need a canon. They need a booklet of rules, like you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and you brush your teeth and then you sing Gloria Domine and whatever, you know, and so on. Francis of Assisi died before finishing that book. Writing that book produced so much pain and disease and turmoil in his body because now he was asked to put his spirituality on paper. And he could not. It could not be contained. It felt like a... Painful waste of time for him. He was living in the forest and he had stigmata because he did samyama with Jesus. That was what he wanted. No, the rest of the things that now he had to write a booklet for all the morons who will follow in the coming centuries. Maybe it was necessary, but he didn't want to be the one to write it. And as a proof, he died before he finished it. He wrote only three quarters of it, and then his students finished the last quarter of it. And this is how the, you have the rule of the Franciscan order in the Catholic Church. Even Francesco could not finish writing. Like when it came to administration, Francesco was a tragedy. He was just talking to the birds. There is a famous story in which Francesco, the birds were coming and sitting on his shoulders, and he was preaching the gospel to the birds. He was talking from the gospel to the birds. But he couldn't write the, the canon, the rules of the Franciscan. No, that he could not. That it was like you were burning his brains with a blowtorch or something. He could not. So that's why I say... Uh, Many people try to attenuate, like God is okay with you, you know. What if Yogananda didn't buy all those pieces of land to make the Self-Realization Fellowship in California, you know? You go now to the SRF, how much yoga do they do? 
how much spiritual activity is in SRF. Expensive properties in California, some of them with a view to the ocean, with ocean view, and it's just a bunch of old postmenopausal women, you know, who are influenced by the Theosophic Society, and they come and say how great Yogananda was. But that's why, you know, was it worth it, you know, to invest money from, you know, shouldn't have been done something else, or, you know, like how much is this material infrastructure worth it? No, the Tibetans made golden statues for Buddha with rubies and sapphires and this. And then the Chinese took them, confiscated them, burned some of them, melted the gold, confiscated them and took them to Beijing, to museums, to art museums, you know. Like what was worth it that the Tibetans put their heart to create gazillions of golden Buddhas. And one day somebody, a Genghis Khan, is coming and is melting them and just makes himself bracelets from the gold of the Buddhas. And he doesn't care. So investing in these transient things is a transient thing. And Jesus says you should have been awake. You should have been prepared. You keep on hypocritically going to the temple and asking God, send us light. God, send us the Messiah. And lo, the Messiah has come. I am He. And people don't recognize it. No? Then this is upsetting for God because it shows existence without fruits, existence without spiritual fruits. The tree shall be known by its fruits. If the Jewish tree would have had good fruits, they would have recognized Jesus. But only a very few. Peter recognized and he said, you are the son of God. And then Jesus said, flesh and blood couldn't have told you this secret. O Peter, you are blessed among men because the Holy Spirit spoke through you right now. Like he says, Peter, you have been possessed by the Holy Spirit. You've been possessed by God that you blurted out such an extraordinary truth. Because this is the truth. And there are people who saw it. But there were only 12 of them. And then perhaps a few thousand Jews who were there around in that environment. But the others said, crucify him, crucify him. He's a false prophet. Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Barabbas is a patriot. No? This is how far they recognized Jesus. They said, this man must be doing black magic with the demons. He has power, yes. But he is upsetting our priests and he is criticizing a little bit too much and so on. We don't know what's wrong. This is the degree to which they understood or better said they did not understand Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. So... He starts on a very, he rises the stakes. He says there are very big stakes here. God sent you to earth so that you should be dialoguing with him. You should come back to him. He's waiting for you to come back. He wants you to love him. He wants you to talk to him. And when he comes back to earth via me, Jesus, then you should say, oh Lord, there you are. You know, like if you talk to me, you are on the same page with me. You don't say, oh, we prayed to you for 20 years, and then you came, we didn't recognize you. It means you didn't pray to me. Pray to someone else, because if you'd pray to me, then you'd recognize me instantly, when you'll see me in front of you. Or easily, let's not put it instantly, but easily. 
Where is the prayer? Where is the contact? Because prayer is supposed to be a degree superior to meditation because prayer is a personal thing. You take into account the personal part of this universe. In meditation you say, I meditate with a fire element. And I feel a lot of fire and I can turn on a lamp. I focus on an oil lamp and it just becomes a flame. No, this is a successful meditation. It's a siddhi. But you have no personal aspect on sahasrara. Consciousness. Who am I? It's just something on Manipura or on Ajna, which is very strong, very beautiful, very good, very paranormal. But prayer is like personal. And in this way, prayer is supposed to always include some sahasrara. Because it contains consciousness, speech. Who am I? Vak, Siddhi, and all that. You know, and you pray to God and then you don't recognize God? How is that possible? No, because God is coming and saying, Walter, it is me. And you say, you Lord, you know, like it comes instantly to you. The light is popping up instantly and you realize you are talking to the one you've been praying to for 20 years. He will come forth to you. He will be forthcoming to you, you know, and make light because you did the prayer. But now Jesus is coming and most of the population doesn't recognize him, which means most of the population was not praying, was not praying accurately, was not, you know, like, because otherwise Jesus have said, hey, and he comes into the city, he makes a sacrifice and stages, he comes into a city like a king on a donkey with the leaves of I don't know which plant from the fig tree or some like flowing over his head and people are co casting their coats on the ground so that the donkey steps on coats. He makes a royal entry in Jerusalem. He's giving it to them on a silver plate. Here I am. I'm coming. And yet in a week, he's on a cross. In five days, he's crucified already. This is very relevant. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. This is where he stopped last time. No, he entered in the temple and the first thing is cleaning the place. Exactly as you wash your hands or wash your feet or you say take a bath before going in front of God. He first is starting with the cleaning. Not with the prayer and so on. He starts with the purification of the place. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. But you have made it into a den of robbers. As I said last time. People were cheating, obviously. There is a lot of commercial benefit in these religious areas. Either you go to the big Buddha in Samui, or you go to some temple in India, or you go to Lourdes, or to Fatima, or other Catholic places, you always find a thriving business around them. There's always a thriving business. And that business is having immoral gains. It's okay for the business to have side. Like, I need a candle to light to Shiva. And there is a guy who lights candles. And the manufacturing of a candle costs 80 pence. And I'm paying it with one pound. The commercial made a 20% profit. That's okay. It's still reasonable. But no, it costs 80 pence and you are charged five pounds. And you can buy for one pound, but in the supermarket, which is five kilometers away. And you don't want to walk five kilometers for a candle, so you buy it there for five pounds. Overpriced. Heavily overpriced. How people can have the cheek to come in the presence of God and to make shameless trade there. It's like his God is dead. 
They are not afraid of God, you know. They don't believe. It's like the stupid joke with the Jews who come to the rabbi and say, you should make rain for us, pray for rain. And he says, no, no you have no belief. You have no faith. And they say, how? Oh, we came to you asking to make rain. Doesn't it mean that we believe you can bring rain? And he says, no, because if you really believed, you would have come with umbrellas. Like, you don't really believe it. No, you don't see it in front of your eyes. Like, God is here. And people are buying a candle to light it for God. And I'm charging them over six times the natural price. And God will not react to this. No? It's like, how stupid can you believe that the universal consciousness is? How dead or inactive? Jesus is giving an instant answer, you know, because God may react in 30 years, throwing you to hell when you die. But Jesus is throwing them to hell right now, in a smaller hell, but right now, directly, because he is there physically present. And he represents God. And the first thing which he does is he cleans the house. He says, what is this doing in my house? No? And he says very clearly, my house, my house, his house. He speaks about God, but he says it himself. My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Yeah? Which is exactly what we're talking about. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Only they didn't know how, because it was too outrageous. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hang, hung on his words. This is where we stopped last time, but I wanted to resume because it seemed to me that I did not insist enough on this intensity of God's purpose. Like God has a purpose. And he can tolerate that in one life you have three children and you work in a Detroit car factory. It's nothing worthy in it. It's nothing praiseworthy in it. Is just waiting for the thousand and first lifetime when you will do what Milarepa did. So waiting is not very praiseworthy. You say, didn't I do good, God, that I had three children and I raised them well and I worked until my retirement in a car factory. And the angels, together with God, they go like, Oh, you know, it's like it's so boring to death you are that you think I'm interested in your fucking family bourgeois life and so on. You know, it's like how does that serve the purpose of evolution? It's like a banana which is green and waits to become yellow and sweet. The banana is totally uninteresting while it is unripe. Okay, some people will come and say there are some dishes which can be cooked with green bananas. I don't know about that. But, you know, the banana is good when it's yellow and sweet. When it's not there, you're just waiting. And you're looking at it and saying, that banana is never going to get ripe. I'll get old before I see that banana ripe and so on, you know. That's how it is. And the banana says, wasn't today a very interesting day for me? Didn't I do well? And God says, no, no, I'm still waiting for you to become edible. You know, like there's nothing interesting in the ripening process. It's just waiting and waiting. But people mysteriously are convinced by the middle religions, by this uh, middle of the way religions, 
that yeah, it's a great good for you to have a good social life, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. you know, it's like really waiting and waiting for the banana to become yellow. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Like, it's a showdown, you know. This guy was in Israel. He could, now he is in the temple in Jerusalem. He is right in their face. And people are not coming to the chief rabbi and saying, Sir, should I buy a white lamb or a yellow lamb or a black lamb? Or, you know, they, they don't care anymore about the chief rabbi. Suddenly all the authority has moved to Jesus. There is a new star in town. And this guy is there from morning till evening. And he's doing what he's doing best. He's preaching. He's telling them the truth. And then, of course, the priests tolerate this for six hours, 12 hours. One day, two days. Then they come up like, what the fuck is happening in our temple, you know? Like, we heard there was this madman in the Sea of Galilee, you know? But he didn't scratch us too much when he was in the Sea of Galilee. But now he's right in our eyeball here, you know? So they come. Now it's showdown. It has to be showdown. So they come, all the privileged classes in this, and they come together with the elders... They come to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? Like what authority? He was just preaching the so-called gospel. He was telling them the truth. No, Like even a child is allowed to tell the truth. Jesus was speaking the truth when he was 12 years old and his parents lost him in the temple someplace. You know, everybody can tell the truth. No? So why do they ask him for authority? What was he doing? Because he was not changing the laws. He was not saying you should not burn lambs anymore. People were still burning lambs and doing whatever, you know. So they, but they are irritated simply because these people, unfortunately, and history has demonstrated in the next days of this, this these are the people who hated Jesus and wanted him crucified and dead. And please, again, don't be politically correct. If these people wanted Jesus dead and crucified, they were on the side of the devil. They were, their minds were hypnotized by the devil. The devil was talking through their mouths. There is no beating around the bush and being politically correct and saying, yeah, let's have a congress of religion where the Jewish rabbis are giving hugs to the Christian priests. And we are all, these people from 2,000 years ago literally hated Jesus and wanting, wanted him dead and destroyed and his influence destroyed forever. And there are only two possibilities. Either Jesus was a schizophrenic possessed by demons and he was detrimental to the Jewish religion and then he should have been eliminated. Or if Jesus was on the side of God, then it was completely wrong to try to get rid of him. Completely demonic. Not a little bit. Uh, oops, uh, apparently they were not seeing things. You are kidding me. These people were manipulated by the devil. Things are not having gray tones here. 
Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. But these people were directly against him. And we are told they would have killed him gladly. But they didn't know how. To, until they found out by Thursday evening. This was Sunday or Monday. And by Thursday evening they found out a way. They found out how to kill him. Their creativity when it came to murdering and assassination was very good. They found a way. And they did the job. So they say, by what authority do you like? You're coming here and preaching and pretending. You're By what authority are you doing this? Manipura to Manipura. No, like, uh, I don't like you. No. I've, I have encountered people. I was going and teaching workshops in different cities. And they told me, you know, when we are having a lunch with you, you are a very nice guy. You are 9 out of 10. But when you are teaching, we hate you. You are demonic. Like we, you are a 3 out of 10. You know, we despise you and we dislike you. No? I'm not Jesus. And I'm not worthy to tie the shoelaces of Jesus. I'm just a poor yoga teacher from the end of Kali Yuga. And I do whatever I can. But if I'm teaching the divine message... And people say when you teach the divine message, you become very arrogant and we dislike you. Then it means those people are hypnotized by the demons. Simile. As above, so below. Jesus is above and I am way, way, way below. But it's exactly the same phenomenon. Exactly the same resonance. Exactly the same process. Because there are only two possibilities. Either I am a demonic, egocentric creature... And I'm talking rubbish. And people despise me because like, oh, this guy is absolutely obnoxious. You know, he pretends he's something. He thinks he's something. Fuck him. No, if we, if we could beat the shit out of him or kill him or bury him somewhere, it would be really nice to get rid of such an asshole, you know. Or I am the right thing. And if I'm the right thing, then their position is very clear. Yeah? That's why when you are an Agama hater, there are only two possibilities. Agama is from the devil and you are on the side of the angels, or the other way around. It's up to everybody to choose what they think their truth is. When we die, we'll all reap the fruits of our actions. Then we'll see which one was right. But it's too late to change it when you die. Because then, by then you have lived your life and you've done the deeds. But people should think like this. That's why the Tibetan lamas say, don't go against your teacher, don't go against the Buddhas, Don't go against the bodhisattvas because maybe one of them is a madman and deserves a kick in the ass. But what if they are not? Then are you ready to take the consequences for standing against the Buddha? Because if Buddha is from God and you stand against him, then you are on the side of the demons. You are on the dark side of the force. And that's not a desirable thing. Not desirable at all. And thus, here, these people are coming from the demonic side because at least we, Jesus, we know. The tree is known by the fruits. We know who Jesus was and what he did. The worst, the only thing which you can say is say, oh, but Jesus probably never existed. He's a Mickey Mouse invented by some people. Or Jesus was uh, schizophrenic, like they said in Russia. He was not, uh, or Jesus, whatever, other thing you can say. But history tends to tell us that Jesus was one of the top spiritualists on the face of this earth. And then these guys are coming by, what right do you do what you do? And da 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 da. They come aggressive. 
at least if you would suspect that the person might have a connection, you'd say, look, we are very troubled in our souls. You are hurting our privileges. No, you can understand us. No, like yesterday I got 50 shekels. And today, because you came in the temple, I got only five shekels donations from the people. So your presence here even has a material negative effect on my life because I have a big family and so on. And we are disturbed by your presence. Can you please explain to us? You know, like you could talk politely. You could approach, you know, they come and say, by what right do you do this and so on? No, like, does it belong to them? Is any one of them walking on water and raising the dead so that they could compete with Jesus and say, I am also a big shit here and by what right do you think you are better than me? Nobody. Everybody was just smelly socks, you know, people with whose socks were stinking, you know, and they come to Jesus to ask him, by what right do you do, you know, when the, it's obvious that here we have a demonic presence. Who gave you this authority? And here Jesus gives them an attitude which you see when he is confronted with these people. Jesus knows a simple truth. He talks to the devil. And he is not going to give the devil any courtesy. Every time when, you know, when people take Jesus like this, like along the hair, anuloma, as in anuloma viloma, you know, along the hair, like when you carry a cat along its fur line, no, Jesus is purring to them. And he's telling, you know, you didn't understand right. Or uh, Jacob, you spoke right, but there is one other great truth, as great as the, like he's teaching. He is alleviating people's ignorance nicely because he can be loving and compassionate. But in the morning, in the moment when you take Jesus the other way around, viloma, against the grain, you know, when you against against the line of the fur, try to do that with a cat or with a dog, and you'll see in 30 seconds they become angry and irritated. They don't purr. You stir them. You irritate them. No? Exactly in the same way, Jesus, when he is confronted with demons, suddenly he drops his politeness. He's not nice. He keeps on speaking about love, compassion, but not when you talk to the devil. When you talk to the devil, you don't make concessions and say, yeah, well, you know, maybe you are also a little bit nice. He goes, full on. That's one of the differences. I have seen great masters who, when they were confronted with things which are semi-dark, they did politics. Like the Dalai Lama, is also a politician. He doesn't have to care only about the Buddhist message. He has to care about the fate of Tibet as a country. He is allowed to live in India. Maybe the Indian government is not holy. But he cannot tell them, oh, we came to India and we discovered you are a bunch of English Freemasons corrupted by the British Empire and you are all materialistic. And so, no, like at the time when the Dalai Lama came, I think maybe Nehru was the prime minister or somebody, you know. Or maybe Indira Gandhi, uh, I don't know, somebody, you know, who was not holy. But the Dalai Lama had to take care of the survival of the Tibetans. So he had to say, thank you very much. You are so compassionate. 
and your fucking demons. And thank you very much for you know, like whatever grumbling he had to do, he had to do it under his robe, so it wouldn't be heard or recorded by the microphones, because he was not like Jesus. But Jesus was not at all a politician. That's why it would have been fantastic to see somebody like Jesus to be king or emperor. Somebody who has all the power unconditionally in their hands and who doesn't play bullshit games. You know, somebody who can be radical. It didn't happen because this Kali Yuga didn't allow it to happen and it was the the law of God. No? And uh, Jesus is applying this every time when he was taken to the Sanhedrin and so on. He did not consider them holy. There were a couple of people who tried to defend him. Joseph of Arimathea and another one. No, but except those two, everybody was bent on his destruction. No? And Jesus talked to them as if he would have talked to materialized demons. As if Satan would have stayed, stood in front of him. Jesus gave him back the backhand, you know, like bam. You know, there's no compromise, there is no politics, there is no playing with you. And therefore, when these people start robbing him, some people say, Christ, we don't understand you. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, how much am I going to tolerate with your lack of faith? But he is still positive on them. He may complain, like, guys, you are really slow and you really lack faith, but he still is with them. He doesn't turn the back and go and say you are hopeless. But with these people, he behaves as if they are hopeless. He doesn't want to... The only solution for these people to make peace with Jesus is to put their knee down and to say, Lord, we were wrong. Sorry. Bless us. Baptize us. Take us with you. That would have made Jesus super happy. Because he's the prodigal son. is the lost sheep. No, but it didn't happen. It happened with two out of the whole Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea and another one whose name I forgot. You see them when you watch the Jesus movies. And he replied, he said, who gave you this authority? And he doesn't answer. He's nasty. No, he says, I will first ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from man? He retorts it. Why? Because John had been just killed a couple of years ago. Freshly killed. When, he, when Jesus started, John was still there three years ago. And then after a short time, John was arrested and then he was killed. And the priests didn't make a ruckus. They would have said, we had one prophet. We just knew one prophet in the desert. And that was John. And the king was not allowed to touch this prophet. All the priests should have stood up and said it's un- not acceptable. The priest cannot, uh, the king cannot touch the prophets of God. You are not a king anymore. We don't anoint you. We proclaim somebody. They could have made a revolution. They didn't. On the contrary, they were kind of uh, back clapping, shoulder clapping with the king. You know, they were good buddies with the king. You know, so they were in a gang, in a mafia. There, it was the mafia of Manipura, of king, aristocrats, and high priests. You know, and Jesus gives them the backhand. He says, "Before I answer to you, like what authority? You tell me by which authority did Jesus 
Uh, did John the Baptist baptize? No, because you, you've just accepted his murder two years ago. You are all in league, like we know. The population knows that you condone his death and you didn't make a petition to the king and you didn't stand up and you didn't preach revolution and you didn't preach to, that the king is not good to be king anymore or something. No, So he is just giving them a bad example. He's just showing them that they are not worthy to ask such things because they are a bunch of dirty, coward, conspirators, selfish and so on. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, then he will ask, why didn't you believe him? Like if John the Baptist was baptizing with power from heaven, then you should have kneeled instantaneously because you were not having any. John the Baptist was having the power to baptize from God. You should have surrendered. You should have been the first to go and get baptized by John the Baptist. But if we say from men, like it was a communal thing, it was a Catholic thing, it was a, you know, it was a community thing. Through the power of the crowd, through the power of the national soul of Israel, John was somehow the prophet of the people. He was people's prophet. And from that, he got the power to represent the people. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So then we'll have social revolution if it was from man. And we had the total wrong attitude. So they could not. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Like, no, they couldn't say John had no authority to baptize. Because he was a martyr, he was already revered. You know, they couldn't turn that wave. But they simply prefer to evade and they say, we don't know. You know, they don't say, we don't know if there was any gift to baptize. We don't know where it was, right? It was something and we don't know. You know, exactly like people always try to muddle these things. You know, there are some facts. No, the Amish people don't get autism as much as the rest of America does. Hundred times over or something. Why do the Amish people not get autism? No. Ah, but, but we don't know from where and it's not been researched properly. Like you muddle it. You give politician answers in which you don't address the problem. Because there are some very provocative issues. Always. You can see the signs. But uh, you refuse to see them. People refuse to see them. You know, like... And then they answered, we don't know. Well, like people say that life has appeared because the lightning came in some ammonia and methane in the primitive atmosphere of the earth. Show us. Take ammonia and methane and electricity and whatever you want and make an amoeba. Make a monocellular microorganism which is alive. Nobody has done that. People can take amoebas and fiddle with their genetical code. But the amoebas are already alive and already there. Nobody has taken hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen and created an amoeba. No? And, but still they shamelessly teach it in school that this is how most probably life appeared on earth. Now they have gone beyond this. They have gone to the God particle. Oh, we tell you that in the black holes, in the great void, there was the Higgs boson and that is God. Is there any demonstration for it? Can you show it? No, there is nothing. It's just aberrant theories. And I could extend on that very bitterly, but we don't have time. 
So they said they simply tried to brush Jesus away. Like we asked you a question, you ask back a question and say, no, nah, we cannot say, and so what we cannot say. And then Jesus, of course, gives them the backhand once more, this time radically. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Like he gives them the fuck you treatment. He simply tells you, you know, it's like you don't answer to common sense because you know what common sense would say. And now you are trying me to wind me up with uh, bullshit things. Like I should come and say something which will make me sound ridiculous or too much. No, 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 no. It's not going to happen that way. You know? And he simply... So Jesus is very not cooperating. People say, why did this escalate to such levels? Because once he was in the presence of what he considered to be the devil or people manipulated by the devil, which is the same, Jesus was becoming very nasty. Like when the devil came and remember when Jesus fasted 40 days before he started his ministry, the devil came allegedly and tempted him and said, jump from the roof of the temple and God will send his angels, you know. And God's, Jesus says, no, no, this is no, this is bullshit you are asking, you know. And then he said, get behind me devil you know like you don't talk to the devil to the devil you just give the backhand you know some slap him on the face you know get behind me you know it's like i'm not going to have an argument with the devil it's not worth it because the devil is master in arguments the devil is arguing with god himself you know and therefore what use is there there's no use to argue with such people so jesus is just giving them his scorn, his defiance, his direct provocation in the face. Like here is the gauntlet. Pam! Hit you over the cheek, you know. It's like, do your worst. You know, like, you don't get anything. I'm not talking to you like I talk to nice people. He's telling me you don't, you refuse to answer a question which you know that the answer is dooming you. Then don't come and ask shit from me. The point was that Jesus was having this divine inspiration and he always found arguments. I cannot say that every guru on this planet had the same thing. That if you would be confronted with demonic dark influences, you should always have the right argument. This eloquence, this thing that your word is the word of God. Your word comes directly from Paravak, from the word of Shiva. That it flows without any hindrance or delay. And you are there. You see that Jesus had that nobody caught Jesus without an answer or without a backhand. He was always full on. Full on. This shows exactly this perfect connection to God. 100%. You know? I can never dare to claim such a thing. If I'm tired, if I'm careless, if I'm this, if I'm that, you can catch me on the wrong foot. I might need for one week to formulate an answer to some stupidity which has been said, no, or something. Because I need to meditate, I need to connect, I need to let it flow through me. But to Jesus, it flows instantaneously all the time. It's like the lightning bolts. Nobody could beat Jesus in the words. 
with the words Jesus was God. You know? And you cannot argue with God. Because Jesus would always find a metaphor, a parable, an example, which will touch you exactly in your heart, exactly in your conscience. And then you'd be like, ah shit, you know, this guy, we have to kill him. You know? The demons did not get influenced positively by seeing this. They just stayed in their ego and they said, this guy has a very sharp tongue. We have to execute him quickly. No, because he is, uh, no, nobody can fight with this guy. He is the best philosopher in the world. I remember there is a scene in the book of Henry Sienkiewicz, Kvovadis, which is a wonderful book. Henry Sienkiewicz, I think he got the, either for this trilogy or for the one uh, from the Polish history, he got the Nobel Prize in Literature. It's a Nobel Prize author, and he writes beautiful, Henry Sienkiewicz. And in Quo Vadis, he reproduces this story with Peter, who was about to leave Rome in the persecutions of Emperor Nero. And then he met with Jesus in a vision. And Jesus said, well, where are you going, Peter? And Peter said, well, I have to run because they burn us in the Colosseum, you know. But he says, what are you doing, Lord? Because you walk the other way around. And he says, well, if you go, then I will walk to Rome to be crucified the second time. Then Peter realized, my goodness, it's not enough. I've been a fucking coward 30 years ago. Now I'm about to do it again. Are you crazy? You know? And then Peter, not only that he turned back to Rome and he got crucified, but he got crucified upside down. You know? Like he said, I'm not worthy to die of the same death as Jesus. It's too much of an honor to crucify me. And the Roman soldier says, we can oblige you, Baba. We can crucify you in a more terrible way than we crucified Jesus. And they crucified him upside down. But this is so, in that, in that Quo Vadis, uh, Paul, I, remember, I don't remember if Peter or Paul, Paul or Peter, is talking to a Roman philosopher, to one of these Senecas or something, you know. And that philosopher is not Christian. So he's talking from the position of a pagan philosopher to Paul. Or, and every time he says something, Peter or Paul, I think it was Peter, who was a fisherman originally, Peter beats him to pieces. Like Peter demonstrates that the message of Jesus is the real thing. And then this guy Seneca, he says, man, Jewish fisherman, Peter, I wouldn't like to meet with you in a philosophical debate in the arena, you know, like they were meeting in the forum. And they're like, he realized this man somehow speaks fluently from God. No, he's possessed by God. You cannot argue with such a person. Because such a person will always find the clear conscience and the clear words by which he will trash you. You will appear immediately butt naked in front of these ones. In India, they took this to the extent where they argued with Shankaracharya. Those of you who remember the Shankaracharya movie, very slow and very boring in many ways. And there was this habit. If you argued, two philosophers argued with each other and one crushed the other, the other had to become the disciple of the first. You are not a master anymore. You lost your mastership and you had to become the disciple of the other one. No? Because this word, this eloquence, no? 
Like, let's present the tenets of Kashmiri Shaivism. Is Kashmiri Shaivism is right or Vedanta is right? If anybody would argue with Abhinavagupta, Abhinavagupta will turn them into salad. Will cut them into pieces like salad, you know, because he was, and he would demonstrate that Kashmiri Shaivism is the ultimate truth. And therefore everybody would have to become his disciple. That's why they proclaimed him the leader of all the tantric schools. You can imagine what kind of eloquence did Abhinavagupta have. Because he was sitting in Samadhi with his Rudravina and sometimes saying, I am Shiva, this and that. The soul is the dancer. No, that's one of the verses from the Shiva Sutra. You know, Chaitanya Atma and then the soul is the dancer. The dancer like Shiva, the dancer, that means the actor of the universe. That's the second sutra. You know? He will tell you one of this, he will bury you simply. You would be kind of flattened against the wall. This is the power of the speech. Today, if you would tell the truth, the people would kill you. They killed Socrates, who was telling all, and that was 2,300 years ago. You know? And Socrates was just speaking the truth. No more and no less. And they said, Socrates, your truth is so disturbing and so nasty that why don't you drink some poison? They condemned him officially to drink poison. So what are we surprised that they crucified Jesus 300 years later? Of course they crucified him because humanity cannot take that. That burns like, not like a red hot iron, like white hot iron, you know. It burns completely. It's irresistible. And that's the word of one like Jesus. You know, that's why I admire him. He didn't do politics. He didn't mince with his. He went straight to the point. And if you don't like it, kiss my ass and be at war with God. As simple as that. It's my way or the highway. You know, there is no other compromise line here. Jesus doesn't say those of you who don't want to follow my way. Maybe you follow a way which is 25% of my way. Like there's no way. It's his way or nothing. It's a new covenant. I'm giving you the new covenant. You follow the new covenant or you don't have a covenant with God. So, then when they wouldn't say what it was, then he simply said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He could have tried to say, I'm a Buddha. I'm enlightened. God talked to me this morning and told me what to tell you. He could have tried to find some excuse. I'm bringing you some word from God. No, the prophets were saying, Oh Israel, listen, your Lord is talking, is speaking. Like now I'm channeling something from God. This is the Dharma. Now I'm telling to you about, Jesus didn't bother. He was just there and he simply said, My authority is the supreme authority. No, and I'm not going to tell you where I got it from or how. No, it's like it's none of your business. Especially if you ask me like this. When he asked Peter, and Peter said, "You are you the Son of God, the Messiah? Huh? Jesus was moved almost to tears. And he said, no flesh and blood could have shown you this truth. You know, you are blessed among men. To say, you know, like he praised him and, you know, he was very forthcoming. You know? and, and he said, and to all of you, I say this, Peter has spoken the truth. No? Like he said, I am what Peter said I am. You know? He could have done the same with the priests. I am the Son of God. I am this. Well, look what Peter said. And he is right. 
But he didn't say that to people who are contrary. People who are contrary, Jesus was having another kind of reaction. Very dismissive. Very like he was talking to the demons. And he was, again, giving them the backhand. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. That's, of course, God who created the world and rented it to human beings. He left it in the administration of human beings for a long time, because God sometimes does not intervene directly. With Jesus, that's an intervention, because God manifested via Jesus in the physical world, and via Krishna, and via a few others, you know. But... Otherwise, God is just sitting there and spinning the thumbs and saying, let's see what they do. Interesting or not interesting. You know, let's see what the baboons do. How the flowers are blooming. Are they blooming or this tree gives no flowers? Let me see. So he left it to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the, so he sent, I'm sorry, uh, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants. He would be the servant, Jesus, right? Because he comes from God. He comes from the master of the vineyard. So they would give him, the servant, some of the fruit of the vineyard. Like, I am the son of God, and I'm asking for your acknowledgement. I'm asking for the fruit. No, kiss my big toe and say I'm God. No, or something, you know, I mean, I'm provoking on purpose by saying it in an ugly way. Because that's exactly how the ego sees it. The ego sees it very provocatively, like, what, now should he kiss his big toe? Actually, yes. Actually, yes. No, you should prostrate like the Tibetans, a hundred kilometers of prostrations before you go to reach, see Jesus, to deserve to see him. No, of course. No, because there's God who sent his direct representative. Give him the fruit or some of the fruit. But the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. These are the prophets. John was one of such servants, and they killed him. You know, He sent another servant, but that also one day beat and treated shamefully, and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. That's what the Jews have done with the prophets. And believe me, it has happened in India, it has happened in the Buddhist environment, it has happened with Sufi saints in Islam. It's universal. It's universal that people treat the saints bad because of what I said all until now. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Like there were prophets... And they were kicked out. John killed. Others killed as well. Not John was the first one killed. You know? And now it's not a servant. Now it's the son of God. You know? And it's like at least now you should have some shame. But the problem is that the demons have no shame. And no measure. You know? And now they are about to really do the... Jesus is describing his own situation all the time. You know? But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Like if, God, if the tenant has not even a son, then he's lost. They don't understand anything about who God is 
or what God is. It's a projection of the human ego of the most pathetic type. No? So let's kill him and the inter- inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, which is exactly what will happen to Jesus in four or five days. What then will the owner of a vineyard do to them? You know, like he's asking them rhetorically, you know, it's like, this, this is about what we're talking about. What do you expect God to do on this one? No? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's exactly what happened. No? A lot of karma. You'll see the Jews, the Jewish priests, unfortunately, acting in the name of the masses, and the masses did not condone that necessarily, but some did. They say, kill him, kill him, because uh, this Roman procurator hesitated. And they said, kill him, kill him, may his blood be upon us. You know, like, we take responsibility, you know. That responsibility has functioned for a long time. Try to think about the fate of the Jews. Until uh, the Rothschild family become powerful financially, and until the Zionists manage to get some political uh, acumen, some political credit, and they recreated the state of Israel in 1947, until that time, the history of the Jews for 19 centuries has been pretty much of a nightmare. Pretty much of a nightmare. No? And if you say, kill, kill Jesus, and may his blood be upon our heads. It's like magic. This is like black magic. It's a consecration of black magic. You say, do it, and we are ready to take the consequences. Really. You know what you are playing with. And therefore, he will come and kill those tenants. Even the temple from Jerusalem was razed to the ground and give the vineyard to others which means the Jews were the chosen ones, the only ones who had a monotheistic religion. And guess what? Fifty years later, the Greeks, the Romans, and many others, they had the monotheistic religion in which Jesus was the representative of God. So this chosen one thing has gone away. The vineyard was given to others. It's a very bitter thing. And until today... The Jews, because they are ruled by some very egoistic rabbis, they still don't want to accept this. That because they missed Jesus, they missed the train with Jesus, they are not the chosen ones anymore. Jesus says it very clearly. And either Jesus is envious and grudgy, and he says it, but it's not true. So Jesus is talking caca. Or Jesus is right. And then we have to take this at the face value. You know? And then much, many of the Jews, they are the repentant, the prodigal son. When they come back to Jesus, Jesus is killing the fattened calf for them. Like the father who says, yes, yes, you missed the train first time, but now you are coming back to me. The great joy, the great joy for from the standpoint of Jesus, when Jews realize that they missed the train and they come back. 
So in this way, you know, he says it's clear, you know, he will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Like people, the people in the temple, they were frightened and say, may this never happen. They realized what Jesus was saying. That if we miss the train and we kill the son of the master, we are fried. We are fried. Especially because the Jews realized that God can be very manipuristic and very terrible in his punishment. No, and like you don't want to piss that kind of God. No? And they said, may this never be. No, like we are even afraid to hear you talk about this. Jesus looked directly at them. Imagine, no, directly, like he looked back at them in their eyes, in the eyes of each and every one of those people. Like now God was talking to them. Like they said, I understand that you are afraid. And I was like, but then, why do you let it happen? Well, why, you know, it's happening right now. Maybe you don't realize. Because I've been speaking, the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming, it's upon you. Now it's your choice. Today is black or white. Choose, you go to the left, you go to the right. You know, it's like you cannot go both to the left and to the right. Choose. No? And Jesus looked directly at them. That's the power of God. That's the power of consciousness. And asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? And he quotes from one of the Psalms, if I remember correctly, you know, where he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. This is a metaphor from the old builders because the builders were using rectangular stones. And when the stones were not rectangular, they were chipping them and so on. So the stone was approximately horizontal like this, like rectangular. So it could be put on a wall and cemented and the wall will not go like this. You know, There, there will be some regularity. They were not using bricks. They were using stones and the stones had to be chipped to a regular format. Even if they were bigger and smaller, nevertheless they had to be with parallel sides so that the wall could stay relatively horizontal. And then there were stones which could not be used. And one example of this is stones which looked like a cone or like a pyramid. That they were sharp like this. Stones which were pointed. You couldn't chip this one to make a rectangle out of it. And then it would be rejected. Like this stone we cannot use. Throw it back into the nature. But actually, there was a piece of architecture where that stone was used. When they, you build a vault, a roof, a, one of those round roofs, then it's like an igloo of the Eskimos. And you put bricks, 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 bricks in a spiral. And in the end, there remains a space. And that space has to be filled up because otherwise the first stones from the first row, they glitch in and then the whole thing is caving in. So to keep the vault fixed, you have to put on top of it a stone which keeps, and the hole which is left in the stone when these rectangular stones are there is exactly like a pyramid or like a, or like a cone. It's a stone like this. So actually those stones have a very special usefulness when you have one of them. You don't use them for the wall, but you put them right on top of the, it's called the cornerstone. Because it's exact, and it holds the whole thing together. So that becomes the most important. If you, if you take the cornerstone, the whole vault is crumbling. Like a domino. It's going and crumbling, you know. So he says, why did they say in the Psalms, at 
David said, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Like he, Jesus, is the stone that the builders are rejecting. Because he is not rectangular like everybody else. He is something else. And people say, this guy, we have to kill him. He's not good for us. But he is the capstone. He is the cornerstone, which belongs in the top of the vault in Sahasrara, right here in Brahmarandra. You know, that's the top. No? And basically, he says, then if you are afraid that this will happen, why don't you realize that the stone which is rejected by these masons around you is exactly the capstone? And David, in a form of divine clairvoyance, 500 years ago or whenever this was, he wrote a psalm in which this was written. You know, how the ideas float into the ocean of the cosmic mind. So he says, then, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected, which is he, Jesus, rejected by the priests, has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed because it's a sharp stone and everything falling on it breaks. And if it falls on somebody, it means the whole vault is falling on you and it crushes you. No? Like he says, here you are dealing with the son of God, not with a servant. I'm the capstone and you don't want to fuck with the capstone. No? Not because I'm mean or anything, but because I'm the truth. I'm the life of the universe. I'm God. And you cannot uh, play games with me. Now, if you played games with John the Baptist, maybe God will get angry because you killed one of his servants. But when you deal with the Son of God, with a capstone, here you should have took a step back and bowed down. No, you should have kneeled instantly. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people because every person has the Spirit of God in their heart. Every person is the Shiva consciousness. And when Jesus was there and he was speaking to people, people were awakened. People experienced a sort of a open-eye samadhi. You know, like the truth was right in front of them. And this man was speaking the truth. They were looking at God right then. You know, they maybe didn't fully realize. But there was like a state of trance when Jesus was speaking, you know. They were like, whoa, it happens with gurus. There were people who when Osho Rajneesh stopped his discourses, he went on that stupid armchair of his dressed in his silly flamboyant clothes and when he left the conference hall people started crying and some started screaming because the difference was obvious because that field of presence stopped it was withdrawn no? like the guru comes shines flows God to you and the truth is there it's obvious. you can touch it with your hand the truth is in the air now we speak the words of Jesus, the truth is in the air. And it's not because I am worthy to tie his shoelaces, but because it's the words of Jesus, which luckily have been preserved. And they come directly from God. 
Maybe some adulteration of the context is there, but 95% is accurate of what was said and done at that time. No? And then people, if the priests would have acted then, then they would have had a riot. And their Manipura knew it. Like we cannot provoke people right now because this guy got to their hearts somehow. He's holding their hearts in his hand. He's talking so straight and he seems to be the real deal that we cannot raise his hand in public like this. So what did they do? They arrested him by night time. They beat him, mocked him. They judged him in the night time when the people of Jerusalem were sleeping. In the morning they send him to the local king who refused to condemn him. Then they send him to the Roman procurator who didn't give a shit. And they told him if this guy is making trouble in town, blah, blah, blah. He proclaims he's the king of the Jews and so on. Eventually they somehow convinced him because the Roman Empire was very demonic as well. And the high officials of the Roman Empire, they were demonic people very much as well. So they found a sort of brother in arms with the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities said, you know what, I'll let the people choose and so on. And the priests said, okay, we can manipulate the people and so on. They brought their people, they did whatever they did. Eventually Jesus got condemned. The impossible had happened, you know, because when Jesus was there with people, if anybody would have tried to touch Jesus, people would have torn him apart. No, because Jesus was talking in a way which was making people like, you know, don't touch, don't, don't step on my dreams, you know. This man is speaking my soul out. This man speaking is my soul speaking. This man is talking to my soul. You know? And it's like, it's sacred, you, you cannot touch it. So Jesus had this incredible divine charisma, but on the other hand, the demons are shameless. The demons want to kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. Thinking shamelessly that then they will stay in charge. What they said, if we kill the son, then there will be no more heir and the, in, the inheritance is ours. Absurd, of course it would never be. Of course the master would prefer to do whatever, but not leave them the vineyard. No? But the demons are shameless, completely. And they would say, no, we do this, we try to do this. No, no limits, no holds barred, no, no shame, no shame at all. No? Even against God, they would go, trying their luck. Which, of course, it never succeeds. So Jesus is making more and more enemies. Now he's in Jerusalem. We are at the we are still in the chapter 20 at the paragraph number 20. No? And Jesus has started full on. He has gone in the lion's den. He has gone in the mouth of the crocodile, in the mouth of the lion, in the mouth of the dragon, and there he is stinging them badly and he gives them backhand no cooperation no diplomacy no no he's just giving them the whole hand no? and he treats them like instruments of the devil this is 
what impresses us with Jesus. I'm telling you, there are many gurus who just to keep their peace, and they made a compromise here and there. They said, I can take it for a while and then, uh, you know, give me peace. I'm getting too old for all this. Whatever. They play the more softball game. Not Jesus. Jesus is hardball all the way. All the way. And this courage is extraordinary. No, no compromise. No. Like people tell me, Swamiji, maybe you shouldn't speak against the vaccines because uh, maybe they uh, switch us off on YouTube or something. You know, you think Jesus would have cared about being taken down from YouTube or from Facebook or from something? No, that's the character of Jesus. Like you go straight forward from heart to heart, from the heart of God to the heart of man, because the consciousness is one and the same. With this thought, let us stop for tonight by having seen these powerful thoughts about evolution, how the Jews are looking upon the personality of God and the relationship between God and mankind and evolution, and we'll continue next week. Again, I evaluate that probably in four, five, six satsangs, I'll manage to go through the whole uh, Gospel of Luke, Then we draw some conclusions and we move our attention to other subjects. I have accumulated, meanwhile, interesting subjects that some of you have asked for satsangs. And keep uh, asking, keep speaking your hearts out so that I can give explanations about some of the issues of spiritual life. Thank you all for joining tonight and see you along in the activities of Agama.